Three weeks ago, I was delayed on a train journey along the south coast. Not an unusual event during these last few months. Train I was waiting for had been cancelled. I was going to be stranded in Betts Hill for over an hour on a rather dark, uh, went evening. And I decided that even the rather down-at-heel pub across the road was probably more inviting than the drafty railway station for an hour and a quarter. So I went inside to pass the time away and after about five or ten minutes I got into conversation with a young guy called Ashley. He was of mixed race, he told me he was partly Jamaican and partly English, but very proud to be British and he had served in the army for about eight years. During our conversation it emerged that uh, he'd um, served both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And whilst he was in Iraq, he'd been caught up in a mine explosion. He was walking along the road one day with a colleague and the mine exploded. He was badly injured, but his colleague was killed. Since then, he has been discharged from the army. He suffers from what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. And emotionally, he's in a bit of a mess, as you can imagine. When we finished talking, I thanked him for that conversation because I found it very sobering and I promised to pray for him. And he said, thank you, I believe in prayer. And I felt, I left and I felt a bit humbled as I left, having gone into the pub feeling rather annoyed that my journey had been delayed by 90 minutes or whatever it was. Uh, there seemed to be something of rather greater significance in that conversation. Some of you I know have personal links with people who have either died or people who've suffered during one of the conflicts that we remember today. But if you have no personal contact with anybody, then I would just invite you perhaps in your prayers to remember Ashley along with me. That encounter raised for me one of the two dilemmas that I have when we come to Remembrance Sunday. My first dilemma is this, I hate the weapon of war, I think it's used far too easily and I'm also well aware of the fact that there are many people in this country and other countries as well who have deep reservations about getting involved in conflicts and certainly in this country we've had quite a lot of reservations, deep reservations about some of the conflicts we've been involved in recently. Uh, brought to light, not least by the publication of the Chilcot Report, which has been published since we met on Remembrance Sunday last year. And yet at the same time as having deep reservations about war, I want to honour the Ashleys of this world. Not only the Ashleys who've come back from war damaged, but the colleagues of people like Ashley who didn't come back to tell their story. And I find there's a bit of a tension there. My other dilemma is a long-standing one. I always see Remembrance Sunday as a time to remember past conflicts and to honour those who've died particularly and also those who suffer as a result of war. But also I see it as a time to be challenged to make a commitment and a renewed commitment to work for peace and justice. And yet I can never see clearly how anything that I can do can make a great deal of difference to the world situation. So those are the two dilemmas that I face on Remembrance Sunday and I know with conversations, because of conversations with various people that I'm not alone. Some of you share those dilemmas as well. 
There's a story that comes from the First World War that helps me to work through some of those dilemmas. I want to share something of that story with you this morning and then relate it to the readings that we heard, the reading we heard particularly from the letter of Paul to the Romans. It was just a hundred years ago, of course, that the First World War was halfway through its tortuous uh, process. And during 1916, that particularly is remembered when the Battle of the Somme took place. The Battle of the Somme lasted for four and a half months, from the beginning of July to the middle of November. And over one million people on both sides were killed. 19,240 on one day alone. Figures that are difficult to get our heads around. And the story I want to tell you comes from that First World War and it involves Geoffrey Studdart Kennedy, the man who was the author of the hymn that we've just sung. When war broke out in 1914, Geoffrey Studdart Kennedy was a young man he just entered the ministry, the priesthood and the Church of England. And at that time, the background in this nation was that there was a, a great feeling of rightness amongst the vast majority of people and certainly the vast majority of people in the churches that going to war was the right way of dealing with the evil that had reared its head. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, whilst not wildly enthusiastic for war, was in favour of it. The Bishop of London often was seen in his army uniform and he was described as the best recruiting sergeant that the army had. And then there was support from the Roman Catholic Cardinal. There was support from a man called F.B. Mayer who was a spokesman for the free churches and the chief rabbi. And down the road at Westminster Chapel, Campbell Morgan was the minister at the time and he said that the sign of the cross is on every man that marches to his death. And Stoddart Kennedy, as a young Christian, a young minister, got caught up in that hatred of evil that needed to be challenged. And he offered for service as an army chaplain. And very soon left parish work and was sent to join the forces and found himself on the front line. He was one of those people who managed to relate to all sorts of people of whatever class and background, educational standard and all the rest of it quite easily. He found himself at home with the men on the line and he uh, was very sensitive to their, their fears. It was a hard battle. It was there that he earned his nickname Woodbine Willie because he was the man who was, uh, would hand out cigarettes, the Woodbine cigarettes, to people in order to calm their nerves. One day, there's a lovely story told about one day when in the aftermath of some confusion that had followed shelling amongst a group of people and it was so dark and cloudy that people didn't know who was who and somebody was pushing in behind and said, who the devil is that? And instead of turning around and saying, it's Studdart Kennedy, he said, it's the church. And the army bloke behind him said, what the so-and-so-and-so-and-so is the church doing here? Well, that's quite a profound theological question, actually, isn't it? What was the church doing there? The church was there, of course, to support and uh, comfort and to bring God's word into that hell of a situation. Stuart Kennedy was there, first of all, because he hated evil. But the story develops, and I want to tell you a bit about the development of the story, because it's important to realize that the story does not just end with the hating of evil. 
As the war wore on, Stuart Kennedy got involved and caught up in a movement which was initiated by the Church of England, a movement that was known as the National Mission for Repentance and Hope. And instead of simply focusing on the evil that came from Germany, uh, there slowly dawned a recognition that there was a need to recognize that evil and wrong was not totally on one side. It was a movement called repentance because as Archbishop Cosmo Gordon Lang, who was the Archbishop of York at the time said, we are called to bid men and women everywhere to repent of the sins which have strained our civilization and brought upon it the manifest judgment of God. And behind that movement, there was a conviction that if there was going to be hope for a peaceful future, then there must be repentance for the present. And it wasn't the own, only the enemy that needed to repent. The national movement for repentance and hope. And Stuart Kennedy was called back from the front line as an army chaplain, and he was called to be a spokesman and to go around the country uh, taking this message of repentance and hope. And it was a significant development. Yes, there was a need to confront evil. Yes, there had seemed to be the need to go to war. But there was also a need to acknowledge that evil wasn't something that was just traded in by the enemy. And then there was a further development in his life and in his ministry. Because with time to think and reflect more widely as he travelled the country with this mission of repentance and hope, Stuart Kennedy found himself reflecting on the whole business of war and the suffering that it brought and the people that he'd known and uh, stood alongside uh, in the trenches. He never became an absolute pacifist. He never condemned the British soldiers who'd fought against Germany as they saw it to protect their families and their country because he'd been alongside them, those vulnerable young men walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But he regarded war as an evil. He came to regard war as an evil which corrupted those who took part in it, destroyed their families, and also fostered a lot of national hatred. And he came to believe that war was against the will of God. Just now we sung one of his poems, but the shortest one probably, that he wrote was a poem that he entitled Waste. Some of you perhaps know the poem. Waste of muscle, waste of brain, waste of patience, waste of pain, waste of manhood, waste of health, waste of beauty, waste of wealth, waste of blood and waste of tears, waste of youth's most precious years, waste of ways the saints have trod, waste of glory, waste of God, war. And those words came from a man who initially had been convinced about the necessity and the rightness of going to war. And the Dean of Worcester said about Studdock Kennedy, he went to war as a holy crusade by which righteous victory would be vindicated. But he returned hating the wickedness of war. And he saw war as the very opposite of all those virtues espoused in Romans chapter 12 that we read just now. And there's one more development in the story of Stuart Kennedy, and it's one which is a relevant one for us. Uh, three years after the war ended in 1921, he was appointed to be the main speaker of 
the Industrial Christian Fellowship, often referred to as the ICF. The ICF was an amalgamation of two organizations that had been brought together just a few years before, and it arose out of some of those deliberations and debates of the national mission of repentance and hope. And its aim was to enable the owners and managers to pursue cooperation rather than conflict in, industrial, in the industrial affairs of this nation. The focus was now on work, back to work, normal, peacetime, but still there was the need to overcome and work through conflict. And that chapter of Stuttgart Kennedy's ministry lasted until he died. And in serving the ICF, he inspired many people to commit themselves to justice, to um, in social and industrial affairs, and to avoid the wars and the conflicts that are so often present in our industrial scene. And a century later, the ICF, the Industrial Christian Fellowship, is able to look back on an effective uh, ministry in society and in industry. Now, I spent a bit more time telling a story of one person than we would normally uh, spend perhaps in a sermon this morning because it isn't just the story of one man. It isn't just a story out of church history. It goes deeper than that. It is, of course, the story of Stuttgart Kennedy's spiritual journey. And the, but the aspects, the four aspects of that spiritual journey of Stuttgart Kennedy that I've outlined this morning uh, are stages that were also shared by other people working through some of those dilemmas. Those dilemmas that I mentioned at the beginning uh, of my sermon this morning. The dilemmas of how to be quite clear about the wickedness and the waste of war and yet at the same time to honour those who've had to engage in it. And also uh, that other dilemma, the dilemma of wanting to commit ourselves to peace and to justice and yet wondering how our little effort where we are can possibly make any difference at all. The spiritual stages of that journey that Stuttgart Kennedy worked through and others worked through with him help us to face exactly those two dilemmas. So briefly, just let me mention those stages again and relate them to ourselves in this passage that we've read this morning. For Stuttgart Kennedy, the, the experience began as it did with many other church leaders at that time uh, and people in the pews 100 years ago, the journey of those who hated evil and felt that they must go to war against it. Our reading from Romans chapter 12 this morning began at exactly that point, hate what is evil. Hating evil is a good place to start. We need to be aware of some of the large-scale wickedness in our war, not look at the world through rose-coloured spectacles. We need to be real about what we see. And hating evil is a laudable thing to do. It's a good starting place, but it's not an adequate place to finish. Hating evil can lead to some of the most horrendous and vitriolic campaigns. And so we need to read through to the end of this passage, where we find that it's not just about hating evil, but overcoming evil with good. And this letter to the Romans, of course, as you know, is certainly not just a simple instruction about Christian morals. It's one of the deepest letters that Paul wrote. And it is about being united with Christ. Those earlier chapters in the letter explore our relationship with Christ because of his death and his resurrection. 
And we are challenged to be buried with him in baptism in order that we may be raised with him to new life. And living in Christ, when we do that, and when Christ lives in us, it opens up a very different kind of life than just living for ourselves. And one of the consequences of being united with Christ is that we shall be able to not just hate evil, but we shall be in that position where we are able to overcome evil with good. That is the first stage in the journey, the, the need to hate evil, but to learn how to do it in such a way that we overcome it. And if we are over, going to overcome evil with good, then we need to move on to that second stage of the spiritual journey that Studdock Kennedy and others took with him at uh, that stage a hundred years ago. We need to move to that stage of repentance. Repentance is a, a good next step because it involves self-examination. Examination of ourselves individually and examination of the society of which we are part, to which we contribute and for which we are accountable. And to recognise, when, especially when we reflect on society, that it isn't other nations that are responsible for everything that is wrong. There are evil attitudes present in our own nation as well as in our own hearts. And there's a need for honest self-appraisal and sorrow before God and a need to avoid personal and national arrogance. And in this passage of scripture, uh, Paul puts it this way in verse 16, don't be proud, don't be conceited. In other words, don't always think that you've got it right and the other person's got it wrong don't always think that your nation's got it right and the other nations got it wrong the third stage in our journey that we need to share this third stage in this spiritual pilgrimage is to engage in a process of reflection that sees with great clarity uh, the destructiveness of war and revenge Remembrance Sunday obviously is a time when we take on board something of the sufferings and the pain of people who have endured the worst pain, the pain of not having members of their family returning after war or returning in a messed up way that life is never for the same for them or their families again. People who've come back scarred physically and mentally right down to the damage which has been done to children evacuated for their own safety. Martin Luther King said on one occasion that the policy of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth does nothing except to leave everybody blind and toothless. That's the damage that revenge causes. Back in the summer, some of you will remember that uh, three members of our Young People's Fellowship went off to see the work of the Alroad Project, which is sponsored by the Amos Trust Project, which is working for peace and a non-violent resistance to the occupation of the West Bank uh, by Israel. And those of you who were in church one Sunday in August will remember some of the young people who came back from that project as part of the exchange here. And the words spoken on that occasion by the project leader were very powerful, who said... We want to teach our young people in situations of conflict how to protest, but without bullets and without strapping bombs to themselves. And there's a message here precisely on that in this passage, in verse 19, where Paul says, don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
And finally, in this spiritual journey, that fourth stage, which for Stuttgart Kennedy came after the war, the process of rebuilding and trying to move towards a domestically peaceful and just society. It was that contribution that he made through the work of the Industrial Christian Fellowship. In the words of Paul here in the passage, in verses 17 and 18, he says, try to do to everyone, uh, try to do what everyone thinks is right and do your best to live at peace with everyone. That's not just living at peace with people in war-torn situations thousands of miles away, but living at peace with our neighbour, our family, the people we work alongside day by day. We may not be war stoppers, but we can be war preventers. We can't solve all the problems of Iraq and Syria, but we can make a difference where we are as we commit ourselves to a more just society. There's a famous saying that the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Most of us couldn't possibly contemplate walking a thousand miles, probably even a hundred, some of us. But we can walk a few steps, the small steps of working for loving relationships within our family circles, the small steps of creating an atmosphere in the workplace where everyone is respected, the small steps of practical actions in our local communities that make the places where we live more compassionate, the small steps of trying to ensure that our shopping practices aren't the means of creating misery for some child 10,000 miles away the small steps of challenging prejudice and unfairness and exploitation. And when we are united with Christ, the peace process begins right here and now, every day. Amen.